Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by the GA8 Airvan. Proudly manufactured right here in Australia by Gips Aero. Gipsaero.com. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. Oh yeah. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 84 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer and joining me as always, Grant McCarran. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How are you going? I'm very good. I'm very good. Enjoying this lovely weather and I'll bet there's lots of balloons flying in it. Oh, there certainly were this morning. We uh, had a number of balloons up gracing the skies over Melbourne this morning, including, of course, the Carlton United Brewers uh, pot air balloon. It's the balloon shaped like a giant pot glass full of beer and here in Victoria a pot glass is like a glass of beer it's not like what you might think isn't it called a schooner or something up there in that strange place in Sydney yeah 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 and joining us also tonight looking resplendent in her brand new playing crazy down under t-shirt it's Kathy Meckstead Kathy does that shirt fit all right hi guys Steve I had an f birthday recently oh I'm terribly sorry to hear that <laughs> 30-something. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> and thanks for the T-shirt. You're welcome. You're it's, welcome. And I believe it's, it's inspired you to do more flying in a roundabout sort of way. <laughs> well, the T-shirt's a little bit small. It says extra large, but it's a little bit tight. Well, Which makes me think that perhaps I need to do a bit of exercise. So I've taken up running. Well, you know, Kathy, in my defence, you did do it to yourself. You sent me, a male, a bloke, a request for a shirt and a shirt size. I mean, I know nothing about these things. Well, it says extra large. Yeah, well, you know, ask my wife, I can stuff fit. that up. <laughs> and I'm a size 14. That was our cunning plan, don't you realise? It's uh, We sent you up a uh, small size shirt with an extra large label on it just to see what the reaction was. Well, so I've taken up running so as I can fit into the shirt. That's ah. my aim. And do you know what I think about when I'm running? Go on, what, McDonald's? <laughs> I wish I was flying. Yes, well, that's very noble. In fact, when I'm running, I often think I wish I was in a taxi. No, no, no. <laughs> Steve thinks something very similar to I wish I was flying, and it's more like I think I'm, and it very, sounds very similar to flying. Yes, exactly right. No, that's not true. So Grant. in a roundabout way, you'll get more content out of me because I've, um, I've been inspired to go and do a bit more flying. Awesome. And- that always means we end up at an airport somewhere Absolutely. with a microphone. Absolutely. <laughs> Shoved in someone's face. <laughs> <laughs> Most excellent. And it's you- in the nicest way possible. Now, Kathy, this is the first time we've had you on the show uh, in 2012 um, since we last spoke to you. Uh, what about writing, apart from running? You've been doing much writing? Yeah, I've done a little bit. Do you remember the podcast we did with Georgia Maxwell? I do indeed. Very highly downloaded. I do remember it quite fondly. Yeah, yeah. So the printed story, uh, Georgia's um, printed story is in Outback magazine this month and I am the featured contributor. So if you get the latest Outback magazine and go to page eight, there's a funny little photo of me flying the Piper Cub with a huge big and George's story there on about page 89 or something. So that was a thrill and an Australian pilot should come out in the next few weeks and that'll have my story on Will Pen a Pound, which we've already podcasted and um, a story on Justin Sheedy's novel, Nor the Years Condemned, which is yet to be podcasted, yes, but has already been recorded. That's right. We recorded that one last week, but we'll be saving that up for a few episodes from now. We're all over this game, aren't we, Steve? Oh, yes, yes. We're way ahead of the game usually, sometimes. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> so you get to see, check out my photography skills as well with George's story in Outback. Full-page photo. 
Links in the show notes to those articles. And, of course, if you're a new listener to our show, you can find those interviews in Episodes 79 and 76, respectively. Well, we have another packed edition coming up for you this time around. Coming up, the Parafield Air Show is fast approaching. In fact, it's only a couple of weeks away as we record this on March 25th. We'll be chatting with the show's marketing director, Tammy Augustine, about that. The Australian Army's number 5 Aviation Regiment has been conducting training exercises over Sydney Harbour recently, and our Sydney-based reporter, Anthony Crichton-Brown, joined them for a media flight over the harbour in one of their Blackhawks, Lucky Sword. He took some fantastic photos which we've put up on our Facebook page and our Flickr stream and also on our new Google Plus page. Uh, and he's also filed an interview for us uh, with one of the pilots of the uh, Blackhawks, so we'll look forward to listening to that. And also, Anthony the Infrequent Flyer Simmons returns with his first View from the Lounge for 2012. Uh, that'll be coming up. Always entertaining stuff. But uh, I'll tell you what, speaking about interviews, Kathy, we have recorded an interview, you and I, together with someone who you know rather well. Yeah, one of my six brothers, Jeff. Number six three. Six brothers? Hang on, let's just stop here. Six brothers? Yeah, I've got six brothers. Truth. And one sister. So I'm the fifth I'm of eight kids. One of those small country families then. Uh, I'm the misunderstanding. Stood middle child. Did, did, did you guys not have TV or something? <laughs> Life's always been an adventure for Jeff and he's always loved the frontier life and he's lived in Africa and PNG and after a bit of a hiatus, he's um, gone back to PNG. He's been back there for a couple of years. And I actually think he was born about a century too late because he would have really enjoyed discovering the lost tribe or, you know, he should have been around when all the exploring and tramping through jungles with machetes and stuff like that, you know. Well, that's well, he got to do the next thing. He got to fly above the jungles that other people could trample through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So every era has its benefits, doesn't it? Jeff's always had a really strong sense of adventure and an ability to reinvent himself when that's required. He's had some wonderful stories and some, you know, incredible stuff happen in his life. We always reckon he should be writing a book before he gets old and forgets it all. So with the interview, you'll see just from the half an hour that we were talking to him, probably what the listeners might be interested in is that there was another hour and a half over the coffee after we turned the recording off and um, that was, you know, equally as spellbinding. Well, uh, Kathy and Jeff made the uh, huge trek down here to uh, the PCDU studios uh, back in January to record an interview and uh, Jeff has some wonderful stories to tell us about his time up there in PNG or Papua New Guinea for those of you who don't know what that is. It's certainly a fascinating insight into life in general up there in uh, Papua New Guinea but uh, more particularly the way the uh, aviation industry works up there. It's uh, certainly different to the way things work uh, out here in Australia and uh, most other parts of the Western world, that's for sure. So uh, let's go into it now. I know you'll enjoy it. Here's our interview with Jeff Woody. Okay, well, we're here in the PCDU studio and we uh, take great pleasure in uh, welcoming uh, Kathy's brother, Jeff Woody. G'day, Jeff. Yeah, hi, guys. How is everyone? Very well, and uh, welcome to the show. And we really appreciate you uh, coming down today. Um, you've done some uh, really fascinating things aviation wise uh, over the years, particularly when it comes to flying up in Papua New Guinea. So uh, perhaps if you uh, kick it off by telling us um, some of your aviation background and how you got to be uh, working up there uh, in an airline up at, uh, in PNG. Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, I'm not a, uh, a pilot. I work in general aviation operations. But I started after school going to Ansett Airlines in Melbourne into their reservation system and spent five years there, then on to Qantas. I ended up in 1989 coming over to Papua New Guinea. I remember going to the interview in Sydney and I said to the guy in HR, so how many people are going for this interview? And they said, you're it. I thought, right, that's fantastic. So... I should get up there. So Papua New Guinea in that stage only had, um, I think it was just the one 
or Air New Guinea at that stage only had the one jet flying between Brisbane and Port Moresby under a code share with Qantas. So when that aircraft went into service, the whole airline shut down. But Papua New Guinea in the late 80s was presented itself very um, challenging for all aviators. I was working in Garoka as a sales supervisor for the national carrier there, flying F-100s in and out of uh, Port Moresby to Garoka. And one of the great aviators for PNG was Dennis Buchanan flying uh, banter antis all over the place. Uh, so that's uh, that was the start in Garoka. And I eventually spent 10 years from 1989 through to the year 2000 uh, all over the country from Kudabu with uh, Chevron Oil up to Porgara, Goldmine, Octeti, Papua New Guinea, Lai, Medang. So that's me. 10 years very quickly. Yeah, I'm interested to know, I mean, obviously there'd be a lot of, I guess, um, as you say, there's international companies up there with mining and all that sort of stuff. Is, is that the uh, your general sort of stock in trade in terms of passenger for, for really for any airline up there in PNG or is there a lot of the, the locals, uh, you know, consider air travel as, a, as an option? Air travel is the only option. Nationals have, have very little choice but to go by air. The infrastructure with roads has only come about with the advent of the mining companies. The mining company that had the most impact on the Highlands area in Papua New Guinea was the American company Chevron, who did a fantastic job back in 1990 to 1993. Now, they built roads, bridges. They started the oil exploration with a air bridge from Ley to Kudabu, which is in the Highlands, using C-130s. Now, that had never been done before, and that project would not have got off the ground. It wouldn't have been completed the way it was, on time and under budget. And I was the logistics. I was sent in there by my boss, who rang me up one day and said, I've got a job for you. It's going to take three years to go to the Highlands. So um, I thought that would seem like a pretty good idea. Little did I know at the time that he had no replacement for me, so I'd end up spending six months at a time uh, living with the locals up there which was just fantastic. But Chevron did a great job. They did uh, a lot of the social mapping for the uh, for the locals. Um, there's two tribes in that area, the Javaro Nation and the uh, Foy Nation. And policy is that you have to train um, a certain number of the national staff into the airline operations that you do. So, um, yeah, we did that. The actual infrastructure for bridges, roads, uh, really comes around by the oil, LNG, gold mining companies, not so much by the government. The money just doesn't filter down to the grassroots. Uh, and you don't. if you look at a map of PNG, you'll see that there's a now a road connecting the central highlands around Kudabu uh, down through to Lay. There's another road coming up now from Port Moresby to... Um, to service uh, what we call a CFP plant, the condensate stripping plant for the LNG project. So um, it's all going to be flying. I can't see that changing in the next 20 years. And and even with that sort of infrastructure, it's it's still not safe uh, most of the time. Not safe for them. It's not safe for us because of roadblocks. So security is, a, is obviously a big issue. I mean, we hear down here in Australia that security can be an issue. So um, I guess that is, as you say, the most secure way to get around up there. Well, you say that and you'd think that... <laughs> <laughs> you would think that being on the ground would be the safest way to travel. Uh, however, we uh, we move a lot of gold for the gold mines. It goes from the, the mine into um, Cairns and then onto the Perth Mint. So we, we looked at our procedures one, at one stage and we decided, look, it's, it's really not that safe to be carrying gold with passengers. So we changed our procedures and decided that we would only carry gold with a security company or with security guards on the aircraft. And now another company decided to do that as well. So they had the security guards and the gold on the aircraft and the security guys hijacked the plane 
landed it just outside Port Moresby, tied up the pilots to a tree and ran off with the money. So how we now carry gold via air out of those gold mines is something that's a kept secret. a very, very, <laughs> very close to our chest. I'll bet it is. <laughs> but anyway, the, that's just part of flying in PNG. Um, the pilots got a bit of a shock, but they survived. Yeah. But it could have been worse. I mean, it's, it could have been a lot worse. Did the pilots stay on or did they give up and go home then? I know what I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> no, must stay. You have to really love the country. And the pilots that we have up there love the country. There's We have the new rookies that come in that have to be indoctrinated. Uh, we don't have a very high attrition rate. Our oldest pilot uh, had been up there for 30 years. I think he had about 20,000 hours. And he was 65, still flying. Um, and those that, those that have finished flying uh, generally work in our administration office. We've got a few of those. So that's an interesting point in itself. I remember back in the early 90s when I was doing my flying training, one of the ways that was suggested, well, there's a number of ways that were suggested to get your hours up. One of them was to go into the outback and do cattle mustering and that sort of work. Uh, another suggestion was always made to go up to PNG. I don't know if anyone um, in my sort of peer group at that time that went and did that, but what is the attraction? I mean, how do you attract pilots to come up and work in PNG? Do they come up there to build hours? Is it the adventure? Is it a combination of, of that sort of thing? It, look, it has to be the adventure. At the end of the day, no amount of money will keep you somewhere that you don't like to be in. And ever since I've been up there, they've always said one year's flying in PNG is worth 10 years doing cattle mustering around Australia. And I'd believe it. But it's interesting you say um, that they come up to build their hours up. In doing some research for this program, I discovered that PNG holds the record for having the shortest scheduled flight service in the world. And it's in the central highlands just outside of Port Moresby from uh, a place called Waitopi to Ongongo. It's 14 kilometres in distance and it takes five minutes to fly. So... Any pilots out there thinking they want to increase their hours, I suggest you aim for the Highlands, not the Central <laughs> Highlands. Um, uh, yes, but that, with that shorter route, you're getting lots of cycles. You'd be getting lots of takeoffs and landings, and that's that's well, that, what you really need. That's right, Grant. You're getting good cycles on the on the barlows on the aircraft, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, we operate twin otters, dash eights. We also have an ATR servicing the gold, oil, and um, LNG exploration programs. So there's a lot of hours. Uh, it looks like in the future, probably 2012, we hope to have more pilots based in Cairns. So we'll be looking at more direct services from Cairns into the highlands, into the uh, gold and gas fields. So pilots will have an opportunity now to be based in Australia while doing their tours uh, in and out of um, Papua New Guinea. But it's the adventure. It has to be the adventure. And something's happening every every day. Something or something different will happen. Something exciting will happen. And you get a lot of inquiries from, from young pilots, young ex-student pilots that are looking from that standpoint of wanting to build hours. Uh, it's not my field. It's uh, GM of operations who would be getting all those inquiries. But our focus at the moment to bring in young pilots, we bring them up through the ranks of the Twin Otters. And we have developed a national cadetship program up at the Enga province, which is right up in the middle of nowhere. And we sponsor, I think this year we're doing five cadets from Enga province. So we are now encouraging national pilots and training national pilots, which is just fantastic. I mean, you've got now, I think we've got two national pilots. It doesn't sound much, but it's uh, from PNG standards. It's it's a fantastic effort to have two PNG national pilots flying 747s around um, around the world. And one of those pilots was from Goroka, and I think he's flying for um, Emirates in and out of Dubai. That's fantastic. I, I noticed um, we've had a little bit to do with the, the Mission Aviation Training Centre down here at Col. 
Coldstream. And I, I noticed when we were there, there was a couple of um, what would appear to me to be um, Papua New Guinea locals uh, down there training. I mean, we know that they're coming here to do pilot training, but it's encouraging to, to see that. Are they doing that training up there in PNG or are they doing, coming down here to do that? No, we do um, training in Papua New Guinea in all facets of um, pilot training, everything to do with aviation, pilot training, dangerous goods, customer service, maintenance, lamies, engineers. We're the only airline in Papua New Guinea that has a maintenance operating certificate for both Papua New Guinea and Australia. So all our maintenance is done um, in our maintenance workshop in Port Moresby at Jackson's Airport, right. which we're very, very proud of. The only maintenance out of the country that we would do would be heavy maintenance sea check. We've just had one of those come in. There was a Dash 8 from Canada. That's, that's heavy maintenance. Mm. Yep. So the whole thing is stripped and gutted. You know, we were discussing before spare parts and getting spare parts. Uh, if if we really hit a brick wall with spare parts, then we can bring those in from um, cans. We either piggyback an engine over, bring is, in a wheel. Is that a real challenge in that part of the world, establishing a supply chain for that sort of stuff? I mean, I imagine you'd, you would at times need to get parts out to rather remote sites. Yeah, supply chain management uh, is very challenging, especially getting up north of Papua New Guinea, up into places like East New Britain to Booker, along Dolivet, where we don't have regular RPT services. I remember once I was holidaying with my family in Hanoi last year and I received a phone call from this, uh, the supply chain manager from one of the gold mines and we'd done a wheel, a front wheel out in the highlands and he said, Jeffrey, I need that wheel and I need that wheel in Mount Hagen and I need it in Mount Hagen by 8 o'clock tomorrow because I need all my men out of Hagen at 8 o'clock tomorrow to go to Cairns to do the handover changeover. If you miss a beat on moving all the personnel out of those mine sites, it costs the mining company thousands and thousands and thousands in lost production. So to be reliable, consistent with serviceable aircraft is a big challenge. Um, as it turned out, we had to put that wheel on a RPT Air New Guinea flight from point from Port Moresby to being point A to point B. That missed that flight, so we still had the wheel in Port Moresby. Then we had to get one of our own aircraft up there. So that cost us money, money, time is of the essence, but we, we finally got there. We were a day late and I get a phone call from managers shouting down my neck. We service yeah. uh, the majority of the um, of the mining and oil and gas exploration in Papua New Guinea, so we've got a big responsibility to, to make sure that all happens. Yeah, a lot of the uh, FIFO, the fly-in, fly-out operations here in Australia, have uh, discovered that, uh, yeah, they, they have some very stringent contractual obligations with their aviation providers and they get right in and audit them and check their safety and, and operations and everything so that because of exactly those reasons, it's what's the point of having a group that turns around and strands a bunch of people, you know, frequently, not just a one-off because of something crazy like that, but a frequent occurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you finding with the uh, with the mining operations? Do they get right in and, and come in and have audits with you and almost have people in your operation? Grant, we are the most audited airline in Australasia. Last year, we had 13 major audits. That's from bars audit right through to our own internal audits. A lot of these are conducted by not only the regulatory regime in Papua New Guinea, PNG CASA, Australian CASA, but also the uh, major oil companies as well. So even without a regulatory regime or uh, like PNG CASA, because of the stringent safety standards that these companies place on us, we would still be of 
excellence partner in um, our safety system, safety standards. We're even without CASA, even without PNG CASA, without that auditing. Uh, if we self, if it was self-regulated in Papua New Guinea, we'd be right up there with the best because of the um, the high standard that these companies place on safety. Yeah. It's all yeah. safety. That's all we speak now: safety, safety, safety. Yeah, well, especially given the climactic conditions and the uh, challenging strips and environment and the people and everything that you're working with up there, it's uh, not quite like uh, just going for a bit of a flight down the coast here in Australia. No, and Papua New Guinea is one of the most challenging countries in the world to fly into. But, you you know, my, a manager sitting on a mine site that has to move a 1,000 people every 28 days in and out, they are very unforgiving. If you yes. say to them, look, I've got a, this aircraft's unserviceable, we really don't care, Jeffrey. we want another one in the air and I want that aircraft up here by 6 o'clock tonight or by 8 o'clock in the morning. So the pressure is really on in that respect and there's a lot of activity going on there in you know, 30 years ago, all we had in Papua New Guinea was Bougainville Copper, which made up about 70% of the GDP for PNG. Then in 1990, Chevron came in, did a fantastic job up in the uh, Central Highlands at Lake Kudabu. And apart from that, we only had Octeti Mine run by Australia. And that was, um, that was it, three, three projects. Now we've got, you know, thank goodness, Bougainville Copper um, is, hopefully will come back on stream within three to five years. That's not my guess. That's, uh, that's the general consensus, um, which would be, just be fantastic for that, uh, for that island that's now gained autonomous after 20 years of civil war. So we've got Bougainville hopefully coming on stream. We have La Hare Island, which is Newcrest Mining. We've got Allied Gold, which is Simberi, uh, out next door to that. Uh, we've got, I think, a $50 billion LNG project with ExxonMobil wow. um, up in the Central Highlands. We've got, uh, that's American. We have Canadian company InterOil who are now uh, uh, going to build a second LNG plant. Uh, there's a pipeline going to come um, down from their oil pads in the fourth quarter of 2012. That's $15 billion worth. There's a third LNG project with uh, another Canadian company, Talisman, happening in the western province up near the Erie and Jaya border. There's up that area again this year or next year there is going to be a huge copper mine, uh, Frida River that's with Extrata. Then there's Marengo Mining, a huge world class copper mine outside of um, Lay, Madang Lay at uh, Urandra. So all these existing mines and the new mines that are coming up are going to require I say newer aircraft, we're looking at introducing some ATR, ATR 42, ATR 72 over the current Dash 8s. Yeah, now wh- why is that? Why why, why, what's, what do you well, folks a, find? A better performance, more, okay. e- more economy, more economical, and uh, they're just a sleeker aircraft. We operate an ATR-72 from Cairns to La Hare. Now, it's a 72-seater. Um, we've reconfigured that to a 44-seater with a 38-inch pitch. Wow. Very, very nice aircraft. We, we leased that from Bajaya Air from uh, Indonesia. So uh, it, it really is a lovely aircraft. So it has um, it's better uplift, faster. You know, Why such a big seat pitch? Big miners, mate. <laughs> These guys, you know, when you look at on an RPT service in Australia, you calculate the average weight of your passenger and when you're doing your weights and balances at 77 Ks oh, with, wow. with a 12K baggage allowance, which brings you up to 89. So up there with these miners and big Americans, you know, you're looking at a hundred and a minimum of a hundred. So if I get a, a contractor saying I need to move 
19, 18 or 19 people from Port Moresby to the Highlands. What have you got? And I'll tell them, yeah, I've got a twin otter. Good. Where are you at? And they're two hours away. Well, the longest twin otter flight we have is 2.8 hours to Port Moresby, Kiunga. Even though the uplift on a twin otter is at 1,300 Ks, um, if you've got full tanks of fuel and an alternate, you're going to only take eight passengers. Yeah. Uh, and that they, they sort of can't understand that. But, Jeffrey, you know, it's a 19-seater. Why can't we take 19 people? I say, mate, you're flying in the highlands. Do you want to end up in a mountain or, yeah. you know, at your, at your alternate if the, if the weather comes in? And the weather comes in very, very quickly. A young, inexperienced pilot can be very easily caught out. They can uh, dial up for weather in Port Moresby and they will be um, – they might have about a 1.5-hour flight away uh, and that, that cloud cover will come in in, in – just minutes and what it does is it comes up through the valley and then just hits the uh, the mountains and just shoots straight up across, over the mountains and then on top uh, and that happens within minutes and I get a lot of complaints from the mining companies saying that pilot didn't make the effort to fly in. Now years and years ago that might have been the case in general aviation where you might have you asked the pilots to push a little bit harder what we're trying to do now because we've gone from a general aviation airline to a fully fledged RPT airline and we're the second largest carrier in Papua New Guinea we are changing the culture of the pilots we're changing the philosophy of how they think uh, and that is you we're not going to push you you don't need to be pushed and if you don't think that you have the comfort or the experience to get into that airport then don't do it and we'll back them 100%. Jeff talking about steep learning curves for the new pilots going up there I remember when you first went to New Guinea and you used to come home and we'd sit on mum's back veranda talking war stories. <laughs> Can you talk about the, not the culture shock, but just the steep learning curves that you had when you first went up there and then how your 10 years progressed to when you got the dream posting at the end until it exploded? When did it explode? When the volcano erupted. Oh, right. <laughs> you were airport manager. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, yes. Okay. You're going back quite a number of years now, but um, the, I love the la- I love the language. I love languages. I used to live in South Africa and I picked up Zulu, which is a beautiful language, and Papua New Guinea pidgin is just as colourful. So I've I've taught myself as much of the pidgin as I can. Uh, and one of them, one of the lovely phrases is uh, the name for a helicopter, which is "Mixed Master Belong Jesus Christ." So <laughs> anything that's in the air or comes out of the air belongs to Jesus Christ. And if it's raining or if it's hailing, it's M name belong this blue one. What is it? They'll go well. It's hailing. That is ice block belong Jesus Christ. So <laughs> you're pretty used to that. Pretty quickly, but the episode that Catherine's referring to is it's very fluid in Papua New Guinea. Uh, nothing ever goes to plan. And back in the 90s, parts of the country were quite hostile, especially up around the Huli area. And forgive me, all you Hulis, if you're listening, but you're, you can be um, quite intolerant sometimes. Um, and they haven't changed much. Things can still be testy up there. But you could literally, out of at Mount Hagen, back in the late 80s, you could sit on the top of a mountain and watch two tribes go hang, hammer and tong at it uh, with their bows and arrows and their spears and the, and the two chiefs. And that, that would go on for days and days and possibly weeks. And there might be one or two injuries and they'd all beat their chests and walk away and come back you know, 12 months later and do it over again. And that might be over someone running over a pig or stealing his wife or whatever. What happens now... With the advent of um, mobile phones is that 
the politicians and the, the tribal elders are sitting in the bars at the Airways Hotel or the Gateway Hotel, and they're mobilising their tribes via mobile phone from Port Moresby. And they don't have bows and arrows and spears anymore. They've got shotguns and... Um, automatic weapons. So people do get get injured and it gets quite serious. But the beauty of this story, which I really do love, when I was at Chevron, we had um, the American camp superintendent came to me one day and I was looking after all the aircraft flying in, flying out, all the aircraft logistics for Air New Guinea at that stage. And he said, Jeffrey, they've, um, the Hoolies are mobilising. We think they're about four days out and there's about a hundred of them. Can you draw up a plan for evacuation, how many assets you've got? I said, well, Larry, Larry was a, was a te- big, short Texan who chewed tobacco. He'd say, well, Jeffrey, and he'd spit the tobacco between my feet. <laughs> what do you got, Jeffrey? I said, well, Larry, look, I've got, I've got one uh, F-100, which comes in, on a, uh, comes in about twice a week. I've got a Dash 7 Combi Freighter, which comes in on a Wednesday. I've got a couple of Bandurantes. I've got a Milne Bay Air, Cessna, one Citation, and a Chinook Helicopter but the pilots uh, don't work on Sundays. And I've got a Mil-26, which is one of the largest Russian helicopters in the world. Uh, but I can't guarantee that because the Russians um, drink the de-icing fluid because <laughs> it's a dry camp and they call it helicopter vodka. So I said, unless these hoolies are going to come to camp on a Tuesday or Thursday, you can forget it. But anyway, every morning we'd have a brief and I'd say, Larry, how are we going? You say, Jeffrey, they've, they've gone from 200 to 400 and they're mobilising. Okay, day three. 500. He came to me one night and he said, Jeffrey, they're at the perimeter. There's about a thousand of them. Spears and bows and arrows, nothing else. He said, they're going to, um, we expect them to breach the compound at first light in the morning, which they did. Um, Came in, overtook the refinery. So Chevron built, they did a fantastic job. They actually built Papua New Guinea's only refinery back in the 90s. So everything that they found in, they pulled out of the ground, the oil, they converted into all our jet A1 fuel, um, petrol, oil, everything uh, they did from, um, from an end-to-end basis uh, to get the, uh, the project running. But So they all came in and they, Larry came to me and said, Jeffrey, they're going to close the runway. And I thought, well, I've never seen this happen before. I wonder how they're going to accomplish this. Thinking that they'd probably have a, a sitting, a thousand people sitting on the runway, yeah, that, that could work. They get pretty tired after sitting there all day in the hot sun. So what they did was get an empty oil drum, rolled it onto the centre of the runway and said, runway's closed. I thought, well, isn't that a fantastic way? How easy is that? And of course, you couldn't fly in, you couldn't fly out. So they, they sat there for two days, then they all went to the mess. Runway was closed, they wanted to feed then. There were four days on the march, took over the kitchen. And I think it took us about three or four days to fly them back home. But all in a day's work, it was a lot of fun. Amazing. It's, it is definitely a different world. We've heard, heard some of the stories of from the earlier days of the guys who were, um, you know, they'd be flying lighter aircraft and the tribes would be warring down in the valleys or, you know, they'd all be trying to take shelter under the aircraft and they had to get everyone out and tell them, go away, go away. You know, the aircraft won't come anymore and you won't get all your, uh, all your goodies. You really have to listen to these people. You will suffer the consequences if you don't. I remember that one time in the Highlands, they threatened one of the helicopter companies with something. And I think they just turned around and chose to ignore them. And so they broke the glass in the helicopter, threw a lot of straw in and burnt it. it was a wow. Then it was a $200,000 helicopter. It's probably $1.2 million's worth these days. And that's what they do just to get their point across. In Bullish belong you, in bugger up big time now, boss. <laughs> so um, I remember also once, you know, everything in Papua New Guinea, everything goes out the window. Weights and balances, centre of gravity goes out the window. They don't understand it. They want to get their rice and their pigs to market. Well, they want to get it from one village to another. 
we have an aircraft, we call it the Islander. We call it the flying coffin because its base like, looks like a coffin. And I remember once um, a third level operator coming in, now landing at this huge strip that would take Hercules C-130s, an apron that would take three C-130s wing to wingtip to wingtip. They would offload all the... Uh, all the pipes for the pipeline, they would do a turn on rollers and they would do a turnaround in 11 minutes. Wow. That was the air bridge from Morrow to Lay. Fantastic stuff and beautiful to watch without the engines stopping. So it was all done, engines still going. But this little islander came trugging down the runway, turned onto the apron, and the apron has a fence perimeter. And I'm watching this thing and it looks so minuscule uh, compared to the, the three C-130s. And it's turned to park and it's gone bang, and the right-hand wing has clipped the fence, and it's crumpled. I thought, mate, you have got so much real estate here, and you hit the damn fence. So with that, he just unloads his cargo, and the next thing I saw, this flying coffin, the little islander, push off the runway with a, with a wing going you know, back and forth, up and down, up and down. I, I don't know where he went, but I hope he made it. Oh, wow. Um, but they... You know that the nationals would uh, would over overload aircraft. Um, we we picked one out of the river uh, in a small village in the Highlands years ago, and I've got a video of it sitting in the Chinook with the line wrapping wrapped around this aircraft, bringing it out of the river and hauling it back to site. Uh, there are some beautiful. If, if speaking of pilots, if if you want the adventure, if you really want to fly, there's no other. There's no better place to do it in the world. No better place. It, the terrain, the mountains, the valleys are just beautiful. The whole, the country has so much to offer. Not only for pilots, but you know we have um, some of the best deep sea diving in the world. Big game fishing, white water rafting, and of course flying. And you, you there, there are two air, there are a couple of airstrips up in the Fly River around Octetti that are on the top of a mountain and. To take off, and I was reading about a pilot that was flying up around that area, and he said to take off, it's like taking off on an aircraft carrier, and away you go. But I've seen in the Highlands, I've seen them take off on these little strips, these tiny little aircraft, um, Bandarantes, Islanders, and Cessnas, and the locals will just fill it up with their chickens and pigs and rice, and I'll say, take, get to the end of the runway, and I'm looking for it to head north up and do a right-hand bank turn and it disappears <laughs> it's just fallen off the face of the earth and of course it's overloaded it must drop about two or three hundred feet and then slowly climbs and ambles its way at altitude you see it bank turn to the right and the pilots will come back and go you know shake them and i'll go into the into the boys and say in balus in bugger up now quick time yeah, boss, got him mumpler, bag of rice, belong mother, belong me, belong father, belong me. Got to get it to the village. Yeah, I, just the language. I, I remember in Garoka working and um, one of my staff came in and said, boss, um, I need uh, I need tomorrow afternoon off. Yeah, sure, Rosemary, what for? Oh, mother, belong me, she die. I said, oh, no, you must take the day off. No, me not like him day off, me kiss him mumpler, half day tassel. Okay. So about two months later, she came back, boss. Me like him day off. What for, Rosemary? What's happened? Him mother belong me, she died finish. I said, your mother died finish three months ago. No, she was only sick. Now she died finish. Tomorrow we plant her. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the interpretation. All in the interpretation. Jeff, now can you tell us about what it was like when you arrived in Rabaul and you felt you'd come to paradise? 
You're well, so excited. Well, Rabal was look, Rabal then was just so beautiful. If if you can imagine, I'm single. I went to PNG 32 and broke, um, and nine years scratching around the Highlands, going from putting out one fire to another fire and training all these people. And um, I ended up in this paradise called Rabal out on the Pacific Island with so much history, Japanese, the tunnels, the wrecks, the diving. Um, and I met my wife, Joanne, who was uh, teaching at the international school. So we ended up getting engaged within, I think, three months. And we decided that we would get married on top of the volcano to Verva. So uh, I flew my mother and father out to Rabal, got hold of a mate of mine who was a helicopter pilot, and we went up to the top of the volcano for mum and dad to have a look. And it was just beautiful, over, overlooking the Pacific Island. Uh, I couldn't think of a, a more romantic or picturesque place to, uh, to get married. We thought that was fantastic. Mum loved it. So we decided we'd get married on top of Taverva, and shortly after, the damn thing blew up. <laughs> so the, vol- the volcano actually blew up on us. How much notice did you have? that it was Because you were still there when it erupted and then you had to make your way out, didn't you? Yeah, well, I was um, I was called back to the Highlands for the for a weekend for, for something, and I flew into Rabal late that night at about six o'clock, just on last light. And Joe and I were having a beer at one of the hotels, and there was a uh, a guria, an earthquake, and I can remember our drinks sliding from one end of the table to the other. And I said to Joe, "This doesn't look very, this doesn't look or sound very good." And we looked over to the yacht club. All the lights were out. The lights were out in town. Um, and then we looked, we started to go home and we could see all the locals evacuating the township with their pots, pans, bedrolls on their head, their kids, the piccaninnies, a mass exodus. And they knew that something was going, they knew something was going to happen. We had no idea. So we ended up going out to one of the resorts and uh, it blew up early that morning. And because I was port manager for uh, the sales office, um, I went out to make sure that at least our aircraft had got out. So the our, our F-100s had got out, uh, got out, but some of them didn't, the, um, the smaller aircraft. And I've got photos of home of these aircraft stuck at the airstrip, pumice and ash all over them. Um, a, a big waste, but the the smoke was unbelievable, and it's still spewing it out now. Rabal just doesn't exist; everything's relocated to Tokawa. So, yeah, to have a volcano blow up on you um, yeah, is quite exciting. It. We we have we evacuated Joanne to Australia on the um, Australian RWF C one thirty, and then I ended up going to a place called Kaviang to finish the civilian evacuation. Quite frightening stuff, and it does test your metal. It's not a walk in the park, and it's not for the faint-hearted working in Papua New Guinea, but it's damn exciting. It's beautiful country, and it's challenging. So that was a long way from the paradise that you started off in. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, it was a long way from the paradise. The, the volcano had blown up. Of course, then I had nowhere to go. So what would you do? I packed Joanne up, and we went for um, we went for a tour to um, Norway, Sweden, through Africa. I spent some time living in South Africa, and came back. And I went eventually. Then nine years later, ended up back in Garoka where I started, and then Joanne flew to Australia, and uh, I ended up going to a, a mine site doing fly in, fly out. Jeff, our time's getting away from us just a little bit here, but uh, one of the things uh, that you mentioned there quite often uh, that I'm curious about because we actually discussed it at the end of last year, uh, and that has to do with the prevalence of C-130s in Papua New Guinea. Are there a lot of ex-military C-130s running around there? No, the um, the only reason I mentioned the C-130s is because I spent three years up with Chevron, and they used that. 
as building an air bridge from Ley to Kudabu to bring in the pipes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm always curious about C-130s because um, I see them as just an ideal aircraft for that sort of application outside of the military airlift. I'm just curious that uh, that aircraft is not used more extensively for civilian use that way. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't. Uh, I love that aircraft. I, I love sitting up in the cockpit flying um, to get it. When I used to get out, I'd fly with these boys from um, out of Kudabu to Ley. Uh, we really do need uh, an aircraft that will fly freight around Papua New Guinea, which we don't do at the moment. All freight movement in Papua New Guinea is just put in the boot of anything that RPT services. The best aircraft that we had that was doing that uh, was the Dash 7. So it's a, a freight combi. Um, but what we really need is – actually, there is an, air, there is an aircraft uh, – a smaller version of the C-130 that has the um, – you can download at the back and put on rollers so you're putting freight in and out from the back. But at the moment we don't – but freight's a big thing and it's something that we're looking at at the moment. Well, I, I know the the one you might be meaning is perhaps the C-27. The Aussies are looking at buying that as a replacement for the Caribou. Um, it's, uh, they call it the Baby Herc. Yes, well, that would be the one. And I've seen one yeah. of those, yes. I see the Caribou flying in and out. I think the Caribous are up for sale. They've, there's a couple going to Haas for restorations and uh, latest I've heard is that there's a group that are buying uh, the remaining flyable Caribous and they're going to use them for um, Medivac and uh, humanities work in Papua New Guinea. The Caribou and the Dash 7 are fantastic for that flying environment around PNG but they're not economical. And that's why and you're going to got rid of the Dash 7s and that's why we probably haven't taken up any of the Caribou. But if you're going to bring in other aircraft into Papua New Guinea that's not compatible with your current uh, engineering yeah. uh, infrastructure, then it, it's just too expensive. It's not practical. Well, that's why I was a little surprised when I heard you were running Dash 8s and ATRs because I was thinking, well, hang on, you know, you've got to, while they may be similar in terms of turboprop and, and all that, there, you're going to have totally different training to get everyone up to speed on two units, you know, that, that whole fleet diversity thing. But do, do you see that uh, the ATR would replace the Dash 8 or is there a need for both? At the moment, there's a need for both. We have one ATR-72 doing the Cairns to Lahair Island run with Newcrest Mining, and that's leased from Bajaya Air in Thailand. We certainly do like the ATR. They're faster, have more uplift, and they're a sleeker-looking aircraft, and they have up to uh, 72, whereas the Dash 8, the configuration of the Dash 8 is only 36, so we need we need something with a little bit more capacity, so that's why we'd okay. probably look at uh, the Dash 8, but I don't want to give anything, any strategic um, plans away for what we're doing in the future. Funny that. <laughs> I know everyone's interested about um, crashes and what happens in Papua New Guinea, so I'm not going to avoid the subject. But I'm doing some research. I will just give you a couple of stats. And that was in the last 11 years, from January 2000 to December 2011, there have been 116 aircraft accidents in Papua New Guinea, which has resulted in a total of 62 fatalities. Um, and they've all been small aircraft. Yeah. So it just gives an indication of, um, of the difficult flying environment um, Papua New Guinea poses. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Jeff, uh, just as we uh, as we finish up here, um, you've actually sent us a number of uh, pictures here that uh, we're going to put in our show notes for our listeners to have a look at. It looks like we've got a uh, one here of a short final on a lovely beach uh, airstrip. What can you tell us about that one? Yeah, that's, um, I think I mentioned before, I'm in negotiations with a local landowner group on Lahair Island to expand their network. They, are, they currently operate a Dash 8 service, moving their personnel around uh, East New Britain and they have their workforce coming from Kieta, which is in southern Bougainville. Now, Kieta's been, that airstrip, Kieta has been decommissioned for about the last 30 years or since the Civil War. 
and my aim is now to incorporate Long Dolivet, Booker, Kieta into a combined charter RPT network, which will give the landowners um, some sort of equity into their operation. The, the trick is to get the landowners to have an interest in some sort of infrastructure in the the islands that they're working on and that they can make money. Um, at the moment, they pay a lot of money for the Dash 8 just to move their people. So we're looking at possibly doing a full Dash 8 service five days a week where they can have a, uh, an equity share. So, you know, th- maybe three years down the track, um, they could lease our aircraft, put um, put their own emblem on the tail and away you go. But it's it's exciting stuff. And my friend that I used to drink with 30 years ago at the bar in Rabaul, um is now the minister and uh, and we talk about that and I've met Father or who, who used to be Father Momus or John Momus who is now the president of Bougainville that's now um, uh, it's now an autonomous government they're independent from PNG uh, and I'd, I would just love to um, to set up an airline for these people up around that area. Do you find it a challenge negotiating with local politicians or local uh, – I mean, how does the structure there work for administration of that one? That's an interesting example. Do you want me to tell you a story? I'll, I'll tell you how it goes. We have a, uh, a local LNG project coming on stream. It's uh, Interoil and they – are flying all their people into a little airstrip called Parari on the Parari River. And at the moment, it only takes a twin otter. It's a grass strip. It's about 700 metres long. And the strip is owned by the local landowners, and it's the mother who sits under a tree by the airstrip and her three sons, and she's got a young daughter. And uh, our safety systems manager and myself and a surveyor from Brisbane flew out we went up to Parari River on the Twin Otter and we sit under the lean-to and we discuss the airstrip and uh, who owns it, who are the landowners, we identify them. And this particular airstrip is is leased from the landowners to a company called RH, a logging company, and then that in turn is maintained for the oil company. In turn, then we need to fly in there. And you need to get on with these people. If you don't, if you don't get on with them, they're not going to let you land. But because I'm speaking their language, the conversation got on to, okay, Jeffrey, I'm good pella boss now. We like him one player airline belong you. So no problem with the strip. Now me like him, uh, you like him buying one player, one player Mary belong me. You like to buy my daughter for 20 kina. I've gone, no, 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 me got him, uh, me got him Mary belong me, stop long Australia. And got two player picking in and out. So I've got one. I've already got a wife, and I've got two kids. Emtasol, me not like him one plus more. No, you like him. You like him, my daughter. So it worked out that the daughter was already married to the to a husband. He was one of uh, two or three wives. So then the husband pipes up, virtually insisting that no, I want to get rid of this one, and you can have her, <laughs> and please take her back to Port Moresby. So it's quite funny, and uh, look, they're they're just such beautiful people, and to, and to be able to to have that come into your working environment and it's part of your working life is just uh, it's just fantastic. You don't meet these people every day, and it's not every day that you get invited out to discuss um, landowner issues uh, out in the middle of nowhere and come home with another wife. <laughs> That goes beyond the definition of occupational hazard, I'm tipping. Well, Jeff, it's absolutely fascinating. Something that's always interested me is is the concept of flying up there in PNG, and I'm sure we could keep you here for another couple of hours and asking you all sorts of questions. But, uh, mate, we really appreciate you uh, coming down to the studio today and uh, having a chat about flying up there in PNG. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Grant, Steve, and Kat. Good luck. Do you have the need, the need for speed? JetRide Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. 
From mild to wild, JetRide tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash pcdu or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. JetRide. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plainecrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Well, there you go, folks. That was a pretty fantastic little chat there. Uh, really amazing time in Papua New Guinea and an absolutely fascinating place to be working and involved with uh, aviation in amongst the jungles. You know, the thing that uh, fascinated me the most, just listening to Jeff talk there, and we recorded that here in the studio, and, um, you know, at times, um, and we had to edit some of that out, obviously, but there were times where he would just lapse into uh, pigeon English uh, if he was, uh, you know, trying to you know, demonstrate some of the conversations he's had with some of the locals there, and the, the ease with which he did that, uh, which is, I guess is an obvious skill that he's developed having lived there for so long, but it was just fascinating to, to hear, you know, that's not a language you hear every Every day. I mean, if you hang around Grant a lot, you hear a lot of Spanish and 58 other languages. But uh, to hear that one, I, I found that uh, really interesting, actually. You hear even more languages when I've had a few to drink. But anyhow. Interesting experiences. I tell you what, I don't know that I'd really be brave enough to live up there in Papua New Guinea. When he's living over there, I mean, do you worry about him? Is it something that you think of? Um, we've had some pretty worrying moments. I think he hinted at that in the interview and he probably didn't want to go into details and talk about it. And I think with 10 years hindsight, it probably is more clear and more frightening when you can look back. I read somewhere once that to write about something with clarity, you need 10 years between the event and sitting down to write about it. And I've often told Jeff that he needs to write a book. And um, I think we should all just write to Jeff, care of Port Moresby Airport, and send him a letter. And so we sit down and write that damn book before you get too old and forget about it. Well, that's, that's um, a fine yeah. line between 10 years to get the right distance to have perspective and um, you know, gone in 60 long. seconds. Well, that too, <laughs> but I'm just thinking about, you know, what happened yesterday, huh? a week ago, what? Well, it depends how big the event is, I guess, and um, how much of an impact it makes on you. So, yeah, there have been some worrying times and I think we worry about him all the time, just knowing that it, um, it's not like being in safe old wood end where I am, so... Yeah, it was always nice to get him home to Finlay. And as I said in the interview, we would often sit on Mum's back to veranda and have a coffee and or a beer and just talk about what he's been up to or what I've been up to. And we kind of, I'm actually seven years younger than him. And so we cross paths a lot as adults. And so every few years we'd come together and sit down and go, so what have you been doing for the last five years, Jeff? And he'd <laughs> fill me in and he'd say, where'd you go? And then I'd fill him in and 
Um, yeah, it's good. It's good. One of our friends said, uh, of my my sister said, you know, that these girls, they've just disappeared. What's that all about? And the mate said, oh, it's bred into them. They can't help it. <laughs> we, we kept disappearing. Now you see me, now you don't. But Jeff is definitely the greatest traveller, I'd say, of the eight of us. His one motto that I remember was never travel with more than you're prepared to lose. And so whenever he went bivouac, he'd only take a little overnight bag that he could carry on board and he'd never take anything that he couldn't live without. So he's always been one to travel light. So, uh, yeah, you can have a lot of beers with Jeff and learn a lot of things. (laughs) That much is certain. Yeah, I I tell you what, I think I'd need to drink a lot of beer if I was living over there. It'd be the only way I'd cope with the stress. (laughs) I think it's the opposite. I think you need to stay sober. Yeah, I, I tell you what, though, it was interesting when he was here. Like, he seems to me, struck me as a very layback sort of uh, fella. So, I guess uh, when you, you've been up there and had those sort of experiences coming back here to Australia, you know, you can sort of switch off and relax for a while. He is generally fairly laid back, yeah, and full of fun. He um, has always been kind of the clown at the party, or there was always a laugh to be had. And so. That's um, a nice trait to have, yeah. Well, Cathy, I tell you what, it was a real privilege to have him here and it was great to see you down here in the studio. I know, you know, it's not like you live five minutes away from here, so it was, we appreciate you making the big the trek down here to, to my grandiose studio here in Cranbourne. Well, thanks for having us, Steve. Like I said, I only see Jeff once every five years and that was it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And Thanks I, for lunch. And we stole him away from you. That's Well, actually, you brought lunch with you, so that was nice. You should come more often. That was good of me, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I'm Ka- an asset to the team, Steve. Absolutely. Now, Cathy, you've got a new and upgraded website, I notice here, at kathymexted.com.au. Looking pretty good there. I thought it was time I got serious about it because um, – you know, freelance writers, you've got to be on top of it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if anybody needs any freelance writing done, they should go to kathymexted.com.au or they should follow you on your Facebook page, which is Kathy Mexted Writing and Photography. And what's your Twitter What's your Twitter handle? Carscribe, K-A-S-C-R-I-B-E. Send me a line. Yes, yeah, send Kathy a line. Send her lots of lines. Send her some paying People. work. We're just so we don't have to pay <laughs> Send me some money. <laughs> send me a check. <laughs> Write me into the will. Whatever. Wonderful. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Kathy, thanks for spending some time with this and we'll have you back on the show uh, sooner than you think. Thanks, guys. Bye. Well, it's uh, autumn uh, here in Australia and uh, that means it's air show time and there's a lot of air shows going on at the moment and uh, the next one on the calendar coming up over there in South Australia is the uh, Parafield Air Show uh, that's been in the pipes for a couple of years now and it's good to see that they've got it off the ground and uh, to tell us all about that is the Promotion and Marketing Manager from uh, the Parafield Air Show, Tammy Augustine. Tammy, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Uh, very well, thanks. Now, uh, tell us all about uh, how the uh, Parafield Air Show uh, came about. Well, the air show actually has probably evolved from a number of fly-ins that we've had at Parafield over the last couple of years and um, you know the last one sort of got to the point where we thought you know what we could probably do this bigger and better so that was a decision made and a committee was formed and that's where we are now. Well I know that uh, you and your team have worked uh, extremely hard over the past couple of years uh, to make this event a reality and it looks to me that the event is not just about the flying display although that sounds like it's going to be wonderful but uh, also about the community that associates itself with Parafield. What's been the major driving force behind organising the event and what kind of support have you received? For us it's not just about having an air show, it's actually about creating um, an environment for the entire aviation community. We've had amazing support from um, the aviation community within South Australia, but we've also had a lot of external support as well. So. It's, it's just been amazing to see people come together and support an event um, such as this 
and um, to create an awareness of the industry and an awareness of the importance of the older aircraft and the restoration and the money and time and the dedication that goes into that as well. Um, we also have people like Chris Baru, who is an amazing ambassador for aviation and is always extremely supportive of anything um, within the region. He's just got behind this whole event 100%. He's actually doing an inverted ribbon cut at Parafield, um, which has never been done. He's never actually done that before at the airfield. And we've also got the roulettes that are coming in, and they've actually never landed at Parafield. So for us, we've got you know two firsts happening this air show, which is really exciting. I'm amazed to hear that the roulettes had never landed at Parafield. That sounds bizarre almost. Well, that was what I was told. So whether it possibly is in the record book somewhere else, but... <laughs> You know, like we were told they'd never landed there before. Wow. The, the, the gentleman that I spoke to today, who is uh, one of the roulette team members, said to me, oh, no, we've only ever flown over the top of it. So, you know, it's exciting for us to have them on board and um, the fact that they're very, very supportive of the event as well. And um, we've also got, you know, um, a lot of local people flying as well, um, Dave Forsyth who's um, well-known around Parafield. He will be uh, doing a display in the Yak-52. We've got the Nanchangs as well flying. We've got the, the Trojan, the T-28. Um, we're going to throw some guy out of a paraglider, um, <laughs> out of a helicopter from a couple of thousand feet in a paraglider. Um, Jeff Trappett is very supportive. He's bringing his Mustang over along with the Windjill, the um, Squirrel as well. Um, we're doing a Squirrel display with the Westpac um, helicopters, so they'll do uh, a surf rescue display. We're still waiting on confirmation for a couple of the jets that were coming in, so we're still waiting on that. But, yeah, so hopefully that's going to be a full flying display. Um, we will also have some aircraft on static display as well. The ADF are going to be doing a full support. Apparently we're going to have some vehicles that um, Army are going to bring in as well. Um, Parafield Airports, who will be also showcasing um, the big sort of master plan thing that's going to happen. We've got Women's Pilots Association. They'll do the free sunscreen, which they do at every air show. So there's lots and lots and lots of things that people can come in and see. Well, this is a major opportunity for um, you know a lot of the local operators there, as you say, particularly the flying schools, to uh, showcase just what they do to the general public and uh, hopefully uh, drum up some business for themselves. I mean, it's not often that, uh, you know, airports like this, um, you know, you wouldn't see this happening at Moorabbin over here in Melbourne, for example, where they'd have the availability to, uh, you know, hold an, air, an open day at the airport and sanction it off for the air show like this. So uh, it's, it seems like quite a unique opportunity for them in that regard. I really do think that this is a great opportunity for the operators in the airfield, but I also think it's a great opportunity for the general public as well. Um, to come and see us and actually see what we do. As far as what how the airfield operates, we are a massive training airfield at Parafield. Um, pretty much everything that comes out of there is all about learning to fly. So it, it's a really great opportunity for the people that um, really want to learn something about aviation or have some inquiries to come in and see what we have to offer and also to experience an amazing event that uh, certainly hasn't been showcased at Parafield for a very, very long time. We know we have the full support of the aviation community, so it's just a matter of um, getting the support of the wider community as well. If you're an aviation fanatic, you know, you just attend everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a great day to have the opportunity to bring kids, um, enjoy some amazing talent as far as what they can do in their aeroplanes, and also um, basically support something that you is setting out to raise funds for you know communities such as the South Australian Aviation Museum and and these organisations that where people 
give up their time and uh, volunteer. So we're trying to support them. We're also aligned with Parafoot Airports Limited. There's a scholarship fund. Um, So we're hoping that we can raise enough money that we can actually donate to the scholarship fund as well um, and also donate to the Aviation Museum and organisations that basically set out to achieve something, but it's all done by volunteers. Absolutely. It's it's very, very important that we um, encourage and promote the aviation culture here in this country. It's, it's sometimes under threat. In fact, I'm I'm very impressed to hear there that the uh, local council, did you say it was the Salisbury Council that's actually being supportive of the event? Absolutely. The council have been 100% behind us with this and, um, you know, they are fully supportive of, of what we're doing. We're ensuring that that uh, airfield and the people behind the airfield are going to continue forward. So that, that's our goal. So, uh, Tammy, uh, putting a, an event like this together obviously requires a lot of cooperation. You've talked already about uh, a lot of the community support, but uh, also it takes a lot of corporate support to get an event like this going. And uh, I know you guys have had a lot of sponsors. Do you want to tell us about your sponsors? Oh, absolutely, Steve. The main person we'd love to mention would be Simon Hackett from Internode. Um, Simon has been um, a major supporter for a lot of aviation events within South Australia and um, Internode have got behind the Parafield Air Show uh, 100%. So yeah, we absolutely want to thank Simon for all of his support. Um, also, we've had some very generous support from Air Services Australia and uh, QBE Insurance and also we can't forget Parafield Airports and Adelaide Airports Limited because they've all got behind us as well. Fantastic. People can find out more about the Parafield Air Show at your website which is parafieldairshow.com.au and if you're coming from uh, interstate if you're somebody like me. Uh, Tammy, how far away from uh, the Adelaide City Centre is Parafield? Um, we're probably about a 25-minute drive, but there are buses and trains that run to Parafield as well. So if you are flying in and you want to stay in the city, it's not a problem to do that. Uh, we also have the facility to fly into Parafield for the event as well, and all of the information is on the website for that. If you want to fly in, definitely fly in on the Saturday or you need to be in at 9.30 at the latest on the Sunday morning. Um, if you fly into Adelaide, you can grab the bus or the train out to Parafield and um, it's a direct line so that's pretty straightforward. If you need to purchase tickets as well, the best way to do this, because we are a, um, a secure airfield, we have our little gates are very small so <laughs> you know, getting in and out of the airfield on the day, um, you may have to endure quite a few lines so the best thing you can do is purchase your ticket online at the moment so you can do that through protickets.com.au If you purchase online you're also um, eligible for a discount so my advice would be do that, avoid the queues. You can get straight in. Um, if you are driving in for the day, park at 8.30, the parking's um, free from there on, and then go straight in, scan your ticket, and you, you're straight into the airfield. Um, if you do want to purchase tickets on the day, you can certainly do that. That's not a problem. Um, the tickets will be a little bit more expensive on the day, and you will probably have to join the queues for that one. But um, my advice... Get in early and avoid all the queues and get straight in and get a good posse for the day. Absolutely. $22 if you buy it online, $22 per adult, $8 per child or $55 for a family. That's two adults and two children. Uh, that's wonderful value for, uh, for any event, particularly for an air show. And uh, obviously, there's going to be a very, very packed program. Tammy, uh, you're the marketing and promotions manager there for the Parafield Air Show. We appreciate you uh, spending some time with us and uh, we hope to catch up with you after the event. You can let us know how it went. Thank you very much.
Well, I tell you what, Grant, that sounds like a really uh, big program coming up over there at Parafield, and uh, you can tell the passion uh, that they've got for the program there. They've really put a lot of work into this. I know that uh, Baz is, uh, you know, quite well known to those people, and he's been uh, keeping us in a loop about uh, how the Parafield Air Show has been put together. I think they tried to uh, get it off the ground a year or so back, and uh, that didn't kind of work. But uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing it there once again. Uh, that's good value too, Grant. Fifty-five dollars if you buy it online for a family ticket with uh, two adults and two children. Uh, well worth the money. Oh, mate! Look, this is the thing about air shows. Most of the time, I say most, not all, but most of the time, you can get a lot of bang for your buck. A whole day for fifty-five bucks. I mean, yeah, okay, you're going to probably wind up having some food and things like that, but. Still, it's pretty much cheaper than going to the movies for a couple of times during the day and you get to uh, get up close and personal with a whole lot of aviation. And uh, a lot of the times the kids come away and they're maybe inspired to do a little bit more in their life and maybe try and uh, get into aviation themselves and stay on track and uh, reach for the stars, as they say. Absolutely. Now, uh, just looking here on the website too, Grant, because you can get your tickets at proticket.com.au. It also says here on the website that to support the Australian Defence Forces, uh, any current serving ADF personnel in New uniform uh, will be admitted free on the day. So uh, for anybody who's uh, serving with the Defence Forces, there you go, get along. Indeed, mate. Sounds like a great reason to uh, put on the uniform and uh, head on down and be proud of the work that you do. Absolutely, Grant. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, speaking of the Defence Force, if uh, you've been living in Sydney, we've had quite a few emails this week saying, oh, look, there's Blackhawks flying all over the city. Well, uh, we know all about that because our friends at uh, Defence Media sent us a little media release recently along with an invite. That's right, mate. They uh, told us that they were going to put together a media flight on a couple of Blackhawks over Sydney Harbour and did we want to come along? And of course, you and I immediately said, heck yeah, we want to come along. Yes. And then reality hit. Yes, absolutely, because we don't live in Sydney, which is rather annoying. You know, we should get our friends at the Defence Forces to do some more training exercises over Melbourne. Indeed. I'd love to see more Blackhawks over Melbourne and maybe an F-18 with me in the back over Melbourne. Yeah, you know, I'd even settle for a Pilatus PC-9. Yeah, I'd even settle for a C-130, actually. <laughs> I'm just yeah, putting it out there. Just saying. Well, of course, so you know, uh, these days we're very fortunate that we do have a uh, member of our team up there in Sydney. That's Anthony Crichton-Brown. So we passed the invitation along to him and uh, he went along for the ride in the Blackhawk. Now, uh, they had a false start on the day they originally proposed that the weather up in Sydney has not been great uh, lately and uh, they didn't want to do it in the uh, the pouring rain and low cloud ceilings. So it was put off for a few days. But uh, fortunately, Anthony was uh, still able to get up on the day that they did the media flight. There was uh, two uh, Blackhawks assigned to the media flight that day. I believe they had five or six running. It was actually, uh, I actually said at the top of the show, Grant, it was the 5th Aviation Regiment. But uh, according to the media release, as I read it now, it's the 6th Aviation Regiment. So whichever aviation regiment it was in the Army, uh, they certainly put on a great show for the media. And uh, the really cool thing about it is, Grant, if I can just uh, blow our trumpet here for a minute, they had uh, all the major TV networks in those helicopters, all the major print media, and us. Well, yeah, mate, they opened it up to media and those who could respond were in. And uh, given all the work that we've done to promote the hard work that the Australian Defence Forces do here, uh, I'm pretty happy that they uh, included us in the list. Now, if you've been looking at our Facebook page recently, you'll have seen uh, many of the photos that were taken that day and uh, also on our new Google Plus page if you'd like to have a look there. And uh, I think as we speak, we're getting them up into the Flickr stream. So plenty of places you can have a look at the photos uh, over Sydney Harbour. Anthony uh, captured some really great pictures there. Uh, They flew right over the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And uh, in fact, it looks like they went over Admiralty House and uh, Kirribilli House. Some good shots there of the Opera House and uh, most importantly, some shots of Anthony standing there in his PCDU shirt right in front of the Blackhawk. Anthony also took his uh, recorder with him and uh, just before they went up on the flight, he uh, nabbed the pilot and grabbed this quick interview. Let's have a listen. Well, folks, I'm here with Aaron, who's one of our uh, pilots today. He's a captain in the in the Army flying the Blackhawk helicopter. And uh, just before we get going, Aaron's uh, agreed to have a quick chat to us. Uh, morning, Aaron. This is a bit different to what you normally do. It's a bit of a treat for you to come out and fly some uh, civilians around. 
It, oh, it sure is. Um, like anyone that flies professionally, uh, sometimes you know you love doing it, but uh, sometimes it's a bit of a job. But today's like this, when you just get to fly around the harbour, and it's uh, not a bad day finally today. Uh, so, yeah, it's really enjoyable. Oh, great. We're glad to be here. Tell me, um, we get a lot of young kids listening to the uh, program who want to be pilots, and you wouldn't normally think, I want to be a pilot military, join the Army. What brought you to the Army as opposed to the other services? Uh, well, quite specifically to the, the Australian Defence Force, um, if you're attracted to Rotary Wing, which uh, I certainly was, you really have only the Army and the Navy to, uh, to work with. Um, and so for me personally, I was quite attracted to uh, the Blackhawk flying Rotary and the type of stuff that the Army does. Uh, that's definitely what got me hooked. Is it true that you're in the Army, you're a soldier first, then a pilot? You've got to go through all the Army soldier training first, then you can go flying? Um, you certainly, you, you don't have to be a soldier first, no. Um, all our pilots are commissioned officers. Uh, there are the, uh, the general schemes that you enter through and go do your command training or the specialist scheme which fast tracks you through that. Uh, but certainly all the basic soldiering skills, certainly. Um, everyone's probably aware of operations overseas and you, can, you don't have to use your imagination much to see that you can be put in situations where you need those skills. So you certainly do those, not to the standard of an infantry soldier, but you need to cover all those things and be competent and familiar with those things things on top of your flying job as well. Sure. And tell me about your f- training when you first joined the Army and you started, what, where, where did you first start out with, uh, which aircraft did you fly first and then how many hours did you have to do before they let you loose on a Blackhawk? Uh, well to start with you, you fly a CT4B uh, out at Tamworth with uh, British Aerospace and basically you do about 100, uh, at the time it was about 120 hours of fixed wing flying, basic navigation, formation, uh, flying, basic IF skills uh, and the like. Uh, from uh, from there, you, that's when you start your rotary training with about 120 hours up your sleeve. Uh, and then you basically apply all those same skills but in the rotary uh, context on the, the Kiowa. Uh, again, about another 120 hours or so. So you're sort of looking at about a 250-hour roughly pilot by the time you get onto a Black Hawk. What's the, what's the washout rate from start to finish in terms of from guys who join the Army to fly helicopters to guys actually get to fly operationally? Look, it, it does vary um, depending on course and depending on the type of people you have. So certainly um, guys with a bit of experience usually get through your ab initio uh, up to your basics fairly quickly, uh, whereas if you've got a really junior or a bunch of guys that don't necessarily have prior experience, uh, there might be rates initially quite early. But certainly in my case, I think it was about uh, at least 60 to 80% of those that started got through. Oh, that's, pretty, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? That, means that must speak to the quality of the training you guys do. And you're now based in Sydney. You're at Holsworth, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And uh, you're from Sydney originally? Uh, no, I'm actually Melbourne-born, but I grew up down far south in Hobart. And do you get, do you get to uh, spend much time at home now with the Army? Are you away a lot? We certainly are away a lot. Um, all, all jobs come with a negative side. And I mean, probably long-haul pilots would understand this quite yeah, well. Yeah. Um, you're away a lot, um, but we try and balance that by, when possible, being relaxed at work. Uh, spending time with family where we can. Probably the hardest thing is, I guess, the, the unpredictability. Certainly, we've done lots of work recently with flooding last year, particularly, and, of course, that's quite topical at the moment. So you're always ready for those type of things, uh, and, and things often pop up at the last minute. Sure. I mean, can we talk a little bit about this helicopter specifically? My research tells me this is a replacement for the Iroquois, which people might know as the Huey. Um, and uh, one of the criticisms of the Iroquois in the Vietnam theatre was that it couldn't lift the loads. You know, they might come into land and pick up soldiers after leave some behind. Have they resolved that with this helicopter? And how does that compare as a replacement to the to the Iroquois? Uh, certainly, I mean, the, the the Huey, as everyone knows, it was just fundamentally shifted the way they considered to do operations. Um, so it, it was it was what spawned the idea of heli-borne or air mobile operations. But ultimately, the Black Hawk 
was designed out of all the lessons that they learned at the time, one of which was performance, particularly in a, a hot uh, theatre, humid theatre that Vietnam was. And so performance became quite an issue for them. So certainly the Black Hawk, ours are getting a bit of age on them now. So from an, a, an airframe point of view, um, there's taking more maintenance, but the fundamental design of a Black Hawk is fantastic. And and I, I certainly love to fly them. So it resolved all the issues. Uh, it's got more power. Uh, the cabin space is quite large. The doors are big. It's really fundamental design stuff. Uh, soldiers can get in and out quickly. You don't want to be mucking around doing that when you're in a battlefield. Uh, twin engine performance. And something that's unique about uh, Blackhawk, which would probably be interesting to aviation listeners out there, will be it was designed for stupid pilots, basically, or pilots that didn't have time to do weight and balance. Right, OK. So when it comes to people you run out of space before you have to worry about weight and balance. Okay. So you don't have to worry about it on the ground. As you can straight away see the benefits of that. So as long as you can fit a guy in, I know that the aircraft will be within balance and I'll be able to take off, most likely. And how do you go, because um, obviously you guys fly IFR as well as VFR, say at night time, it's something I've always been curious about, you're flying at night time over the bush and you've got to go and pick up soldiers. How do you identify the terrain and how do you know where to land? Is that is it all coordinated beforehand? I'm Surely there's not always time for that. Uh, no, there isn't. Uh, something that's uniquely different to the way the military operates, which is part of the excitement for me, is that the way that night vision goggles have been implemented through CASA, the, the fundamental idea there is to make night flying safer. So you still apply all your rules to lower safe, route lower safes, uh, you approach the ground using all those rules, except that you've got night vision goggles that help you identify obstacles. Whereas we fundamentally use them quite differently, and this is specific to the military, is that we use goggles to fly exactly how we fly by day which makes it dangerous, but we mitigate those with procedures, rules, uh, but, and it certainly makes it exciting. And what's your limits today? We're flying over a suburban area up in Mosswood in North Sydney. Um, what's our flight profile going to be this morning, and, and what are your limits in terms of, you know, because we couldn't fly on Friday because of the low cloud. I guess you didn't want to go and beat up houses at 300 feet to get in. Um, so what are we going to do today? Oh, well, absolutely. The military has the flexibility to fly quite low as opposed to... Uh, your normal requirements of a thousand feet over urban areas except that's not really a neighbourly thing to do so we certainly try to avoid that um, the other day we had to cancel due weather simply because there's there quite a lot of showers low cloud coming through uh, and the reality is we probably wouldn't be able to achieve what we want to today though we could certainly fly in those conditions uh, today though we'll mostly be over water over the harbour uh, up around the bridge staying within uh, Romeo 405 uh, which gives us a height of about 500 feet so we'll be operating between uh, our lowest is 200, but probably more like three, 400 feet uh, around Romeo 405. And what's your favourite part of the job? Probably days like this, actually. It's not particularly exciting, but sometimes excitement wears a little bit thin, so this is just a nice, relaxing day. But, but other times, you know, a day where you can fly by day, low level, uh, in a massive multi-ship formation flight, and then later that day be flying IF or night vision goals and the range of flight regimes you need to be qualified and current some of those days are pretty exciting and what's the worst bit about the job probably uh flying in bad weather 3am in the morning <laughs> no. that's the worst bit of my job too <laughs> um probably just the, the the rate sometimes at which we fly and the unpredictability of it um but then if i had a ground job working nine to five i'd probably say the thing i hate most is the nine to five rep- repetition of those jobs so are you on call as such i mean can you be called out any time to go flying or do you do you have rosters and that sort of thing how does that work well certainly the military applies uh fairly similar type of concepts with crew endurance uh, maximum duty days and maximum time in the seat uh, so we're bound by those but certainly on the whole yeah we mostly uh maintain an on-call ability 
uh, for a various range of things and most notably uh, the fast rate that we've had to respond to natural disasters in recent times. So you, you were up in Queensland for the floods, is that right? I personally wasn't, but certainly many of the people that are here today were, yes. And, was, and that must be one of the more, I guess, non-military but rewarding parts of the job to go and help out people and get an instant response and see that you're actually pulling someone out of a difficult situation. Absolutely. Um, I think most people do this job for the excitement and just a sense of purpose as well. And certainly in days like that, when you're really doing stuff and you're helping people, I, I don't think there are many people out there that wouldn't yeah, sure. see how, uh, how rewarding that can be. OK, thanks very much. I might just sign off there. I think we're going to go flying in a moment. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. No problem at all. And we'll uh, see you on it maybe afterwards. All the best. Thanks Cheers. very much. Hi, I'm Stephen Forrest from the Airspeed Podcast. And when I'm not producing a show, I'm listening to guys who are inverted all the time. Plane crazy down under. I recently came across an absolute corker of a radio program on BBC Radio 4 called Cabin Pressure, and it got me thinking about the portrayal of aviation in general media and entertainment. Some of it's good, and some of it's perfectly execrable. And then there are gems, like the seminal advertisement jingle, now preserved in the Australian National Film and Sound Archive for Jelly. So this is my take on the good, the bad, and the ugly of aviation in media. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. We'll get you where you want to go and give you extra care up in the air. Up, up and away, with TAA, a friendly, friendly way. Girls are nicer there when you fly with TAA. During one of my recent forays into the wonderful world of interweb radio, I came across a rip-snorter of a show called Cabin Pressure. It's delightfully written, very humorous, great voice acting, and will be coming back in 2012 for a fourth season. As for what it's about, if you're web-savvy enough to find the PCDU podcast, you should be able to find out details regarding the show. But it did get the mental juices flowing regarding how aviation is viewed in popular culture. From what I can tell, as long as there have been pilots and planes, aerodromes and advertisers, aviation has provided a rich vein of material to mine for the consumption of the masses. Without going through a comprehensive list of the dramas, the comedies, the parodies of what's out there, here's a grab bag of what I think is worthwhile for various reasons. For me, it all started in my grandmother's house when I was 9 or 10 years old and saw the Abbott and Costello's Keep Em Flying. It had everything. Comedy, aircraft, slapstick humour and my brother and I rolling around the floor in stitches with laughter. It was not long after that that another classic of the genre was released. Airplane, or as it was known in Australia, Flying High. By the time I'd seen it as a teenager, it had been out for a few years, but as one of the first Betamax tapes I ever borrowed from the video shop in Cheltenham, it is seared into my memory and gets regular reruns at Chateau in Frequent Flyer. Another film that gets a turn in the machine is Dr. Strangelove. 
Apart from the surreal concept and black humour, I love the story regarding the set design of the aircraft cockpit. You see, the Pentagon at the time of making Doctor Strangelove did not actively participate in helping the filmmakers, so they built the set from a single picture of a B-52 cockpit and comparing that with the cockpit of a B-29 Super Fortress. The final result was so close to the mark that several USAF personnel, when shown the set, commented that they had nailed every detail perfectly. As a movie that is one of my all-time favourites, and I'm sorry to raise this again, folks, and many apologies to Stephen Grant, but when I had the opportunity to sit in the pilot seat of a real B-52, all my dreams had come together. In my mind's eye, I was sitting there with Slim Pickens, Shane Rimmer, and James Earl Jones. I think you also cannot pass up on Mark Camelletti's classic French farce, Boeing Boeing. It had a stage revival here in Melbourne back in 2008, and for a play written in 1960, it still stands up as a true masterpiece. There was a 1965 movie made starring Tony Curtis and Jerry Lewis, which was so-so, but the original French and subsequent English-language stage productions are brilliant. Then there's music. Having a rather broad and Catholic taste in music, I reckon you cannot get better than the top-charting single Jet Airliner from the Steve Miller Band's Book of Dreams album. Old Blue Eyes belting out Come Fly With Me. As a big Mike Oldfield fan, I've got to throw in Five Miles Out from the album of the same name. And as confession is good for the soul, I'll admit here that I love Peter, Paul and Mary and their glorious version of John Denver's Leaving on a Jet Plane. I suspect this is due to Mary Travers' crystal voice and the fact that when the song was recorded in the late 60s, she was a bit of a looker. So that's the good. So what about the bad? Well, where do I start? Firstly, there was a soap opera produced in Australia called The Flying Doctors. It's ostensibly about the Royal Flying Doctor Service. It was pure and unadulterated crap. Some of the people who started in it went on to bigger and better things. Others didn't. As a favourite of my grandmother's, I suffered through far too many episodes to mention. And as some of the uh, longer time listeners to PCD, you will know, I've encountered this horrible piece of television history in Germany. To set the scene, I've been out in the red light district of Hamburg with my friends. It's the Reaperbahn. And I've wandered back to my apartment in Bergedorf. Morning comes, and I awake feeling slightly worse for wear, and there on the television is the bloody flying doctors, dubbed into German. I'll admit that my physical condition was self-inflicted, but no one should ever have to see a bad Australian soap opera dubbed into even worse German. Sticking with the German theme for a moment, there's also an episode of a long-running series called Das Traumschiff, uh, translated basically Ship of Dreams, uh, a sort of German version of the love boat that's set in Australia. Apart from the fact that the scenes purportedly showing far north Queensland appeared to have been shot in French Polynesia, I learnt from this episode that you can fly a four-seater Cessna from Cairns to Uluru in half an hour. Now, I guess 
guess that falls into the so bad, it's good category. In the same category, I throw in all of those now classic 1970s disaster movies like Airport, Airport 75 and Their Ill. I know that there is so much more out there that I haven't touched upon, especially that paragon of flying movies, Top Gun. I've never seen it, even though I have a DVD copy still in its plastic wrapper, but that's for another view. And as for the ad I mentioned in the introduction, it's in my country's National Film and Sound Archive. It was recorded in the 30s by Joy King, and as far as I'm concerned, I'll drink to that. I'll tell you what, uh, he's been watching a lot of telly lately by the looks of it, mate. Oh, mate, definitely. And it's kind of corny, but yeah, that aeroplane jelly thing, it's rather amusing. Well, it is distinctly Australian, Grant. You can't deny that. Yeah, there is that, mate. It's uh, like uh, like the Happy Little Vegemite song. It's it's one of those Australian classic ancient tracks, you know? Now, uh, Anthony still likes to get down there onto uh, downwind.com.au and uh, participate in the forum. If you'd like to get on there and have a chat with Anthony about this segment or any of the other views from the lounge that he's done, he's done 11 of them now. He'd certainly welcome you in there to have a chat with him and perhaps uh, submit your ideas for or uh, some of the uh, media madness, as uh, he calls it, uh, when it comes to uh, aviation and all that sort of stuff. You know, Grant, uh, he's talking there about the Flying Doctors. <clears throat> I actually kind of enjoyed that, I remember, back in the 80s. Uh, I never really got into that one, mate. But then again, I wasn't really into flying back in the 80s either, I must say. I, I really only caught the flying bug in about 19, or maybe 89, but uh, certainly 1990. So uh, back then, um, yeah, well, we also used to sit down and watch it, and then I'd go out and play basketball. Mate, I was into flying, and I took one look at it and went, eh, boring soap. No aircraft is worth that. Well, it was a nomad. Well, you know. I know, I know, but it wasn't enough of the nomad. It should have been all nomad and just the occasional little bit of human. Well, imagine how much cooler it would be now if it was a Gibbs Aero nomad. Well, definitely, mate, definitely. (laughs) One of these days, one of these days. Uh, definitely. But hey, uh, of interest was that little throwaway comment of Anthony's about uh, still having the shrink wrap on his copy of Top Gun. Uh, Yes, not good enough in Frequent Flyer, not good enough. That's been sitting Uh, at your house for at least 12 months. I think we need to make an event of this. Yes, well, we're we're working on a little project. Yeah, we? I have I have a cunning plan. <laughs> so cunning, you could put ears and a tail on it and call it a weasel. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. So well, well, we'll have to we'll have to make sure Anthony gets watching Top Gun sooner or later. You know, actually, I noticed uh, a media report the other day saying they're considering making a sequel to Top Gun. Yeah, I know Top Gun Two, where the, apparently there'll be Tom Cruise as an F thirty five test pilot. Mm. I don't know, mate. I really don't know. I. I there's a part of me that says this is a treasured, cherished part of my life. Don't stomp on it. Yeah, so it's, it's the only movie I've ever actually ever been able to, uh, you know, tolerate Tom Cruise for any length of time. Oh, well, there was that movie. What was that one where he was played that cocky young kid? Actually, I think that was all of them, wasn't it, Grant? Oh, God, I've got a million of them. Oh, mate, you'd be right there. Uh, but actually, I was thinking about Legend. The very, first, I think it was his very first movie. But anyhow. Well, we want to thank Anthony Simmons for putting a lot of work into that uh, segment. And uh, poor old Anthony had a bit of trouble recording that one. So uh, we're glad that we got it from him eventually. And, um, you know, he was kind of stressed out the other night when he was trying to put that together. <laughs> but uh, it was worth all the stress, mate. That was a fantastic segment. Well, on that happy note, I tell you what, I think we should wrap it up there. It's been a, a fantastic episode. Fascinating discussion about uh, the way things work up there in Papua New Guinea. Uh, a number of other great segments there too. So, uh, boy, 
boy. Uh, I tell you what, it's been a busy one, Grant, but a good one. That's for sure, mate. Bit of an eclectic mix of uh, topics and titles. I've really enjoyed walking through this one with you, mate. This is great, and uh, I think it's time to wrap it up and start getting ready for the next one. Absolutely. Thanks to uh, Kathy Mexted, Anthony Crichton-Brown, and Anthony Simmons, of course, for uh, helping us out with this episode. Much appreciated, guys. And most of all, thanks to all of you for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it, as always. Uh, our next show uh, coming up, hopefully at the end of the month, will feature our coverage of the recent Tyab Air Show, where I got extremely sunburnt, and uh, we're just in the process of putting it together. As always, we grabbed a number of great interviews, and uh, as soon as we get those ready, we'll have those out for you and uh, another great show. That's right, Steve. And uh, don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, do what everyone else in the podcast world asks you to do. Go on over to iTunes and give us a vote and tell us what you think of the show. Absolutely. In fact, the comment I reckon you ought to make on your iTunes positive comment is this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Okay, are we finally ready? Oh, I've been ready. Muffling before my. I've been ready for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) But just you guys are running the show, so you let me know. You give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) You call my people, and we'll do lunch. Yeah, I'll have I'll have my girl call your guy, and we'll organise something. Okay. The way we're going, it will be lunchtime tomorrow before we even start this. So have we? So have we come up with an episode title? I'm tipping bad mousy. (laughs) (laughs) You're a naughty mouse. (gasps) It's working. You See? were right. You were so right. Oh, don't tell him that. I'm not recording that. I'm editing that out. It, you just Aww. know so much stuff, Grant. Oh, Two batteries, and I gave him a good shake and a smack around, and <laughs> we're on our way. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm in charge. I'm driving this baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. You can produce the show for me then. I can have the week off. <laughs> Kathy mm. says, I'm driving this baby. Another title. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I think I said um about five times. That's okay. My specialty is removing them.
It's a never-ending survey on beer. I think the idea is you're supposed to ha- go and drink a beer while you're doing it, so you just, ah, click whatever. She just has to look at your, at your Facebook page. Yeah, you're drinking beer every day, mate. No, I don't. Yeah. That's all you ever say. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know Grant was I, alcoholic till I saw him sober one day. Well, I just, I just look at the Facebook and Twitter things and it's, you know, just tried a round dog bear rolling in the woods <laughs> something and it's got a nice curly flat back with a <laughs> whatever, whatever. Bloody hell. Does it taste beer, good? Yes, thank beer you. Beer brewing talk. <laughs> no, it's not beer brewing talk. Trust me, beer brewers laugh at what I write. Do they? Yeah. Scoff, you mean. Yeah, they laugh with you, Grant. They're laughing with you, Grant. They're scoffing because I'm talking about quaffing. <laughs> quaffing. I should be doing that now with the red wine. Now, thanks for the T-shirt for my birthday. You're welcome. How did we shirt you? I've got it on. Oh, cool. It doesn't Bye fit. Bye, <laughs> um, It's a bit tight, so I've taken up running so as I can squeeze into it. Oh, bloody hell. That's Was my aim. Pol- Is it a polo or a T-shirt? It's a polo. It's a polo. Okay. And it, it's size extra large and it doesn't fit. So I've taken up running to try and fit into the shirt. And you know what happens when I'm running? No. I'm running along and I'm thinking, God, I wish I was flying. (laughs) (laughs) This is what they invented aeroplanes for. So it's actually inspired me to go flying. So in a roundabout way, you guys are going to get more content by sending me the shirt. By shaming you by sending you that shirt. (laughs) Plain fat and crazy down under. (laughs) You're right, Steve. Sending her the small with an XL label on it really works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm doing it with the express purpose of fitting into this bloody T-shirt. Woot. <laughs> it all comes down to that T-shirt that you deliberately under-ordered size-wise, Grant. It's causing me grief. At your direction, boy. It sent me into a mental bloody downward spiral. <laughs> I'm having having uh, self-image issues. Our work is complete. <laughs> <laughs> and then the hat doesn't fit my fat head. So. God, you're just never, you're just never satisfied, Kathy. <laughs> Kathy, you can adjust it, you know. If it can fit my fat head, it can fit yours. He's got a, he's got a, just he's got a point there, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, if you can get around my ego, God damn, it can encompass the planet. Yeah, no, it fits. I had on the mower. He's got a point there, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> now, it looks like if I can interview this lady from... You're uh, not having another woman on the show. Oh, okay, if we interview this other person, person, <laughs> person from... from <laughs> the person from Porlock. Yes. Yes. Hello. Je- Kathy gets jealous. Oh, <laughs> no, option number three. Women, there can yes. be only one. <laughs> Fighting a turf war. <laughs> yes. Kathy gets jealous. Well, turf war, film with 11. I've got to get some of them. No, you don't want the sound effects. You no. sit there playing with your knobs all night. You know that. That's right. <laughs> We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Those. <laughs> I told you, oh, Kathy. Well, I'll tell you what, we've already got a couple of photographers here, but we could always sack them and get you to do it, Kathy. Good idea. I need a bit more work. Yeah, that's right. You need a bit of work, and we can pay you about as much as we pay them. <laughs> you can pay me in T-shirts, in very small T-shirts, <laughs> in ever-increasing sizes. All right. Decreasing, <laughs> decreasing. And, you know, if we can dispense with Kathy early on in the piece. Oh. <laughs> Hush. Harsh but true. <laughs> I've had worse. I think, I think Kathy's getting ready to organise a hit squad to go to Adelaide. <laughs> I've been kicked out of better places than this, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and as we welcome the other woman on, Kathy says. 
Actually, you know, Grant, you should do the welcome back. Well, welcome back, folks. There you go. <laughs> oh, you wanted more than that. <laughs> any, okay. one, any wonder these shows take so long to edit. <laughs> oh. Sorry, couldn't read there. Grant, you're wasting Steve's time. <laughs> you're inching Steve done? closer to that divorce. Aren't we done? Oh, oh. Just pushing, <laughs> pushing me over the edge, I tell you. <laughs>